You're listening to sermon audio from Gospelite Baptist Church. For more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit gospelite.org. Today, we're going to be continuing with Acts chapter 4. This is a passage that more recently has uh, caught me by storm. I've read the book of Acts many times in my life, but I'm starting to read it in a different way. And one of the reasons why I'm reading it in a different way is as my view and understanding of the church changes, I read the book of Acts differently. How many of you would admit that when you read your Bible, there's a lot of words you don't understand, okay? Um, Especially in the Old Testament, all of those weird names. And in the New Testament, we have a lot of words. Uh, In fact, I really love reading my Bible on an iPad. Um, I, I have a lot of hard copies of the Bible, but I like to read it on an iPad, and I use the Olive Tree app. And there's a concordance and dictionaries all built in. So you just tap on the word and it'll pull up the original Greek or the Hebrew. And you can look to see what that word means. Um, What I'm starting to realize is reading the Bible is such a challenge. Not because of the words we don't understand. But because of the words that we think we understand. And so there's all these words. And if you grew up in church like I did. There's all of this Christianese. There's these words, and if I were to ask you, like, Millie, what does this word mean? You'd be like, oh, yeah, I know what this word means. And something weird happens when you have kids. It's like you'll be driving down the road, and your seven-year-old daughter will be like, Dad, what does this word mean? And you start to just spew out the answer, because, of course, you know. You're just like, oh, it means this. And then you're like, wait, I have to actually explain this so a seven-year-old can understand it. So I'm going to break this down and keep this simple for her. And all of a sudden, the prestigious professor of Bible, a champion Christian college who has my master's in theology, I'm like, I don't even know what this word means. Like, I mean, I know what it means, but I don't know what it means. And what, what my goal is this morning is to take a word that all of us know what it means and to show us that we don't know what it means. And I think as we do that, we're going to start to read the book of Acts in a different way. The word we're going to talk about this morning is the word church. And uh, by the way, in fairness to us, the Webster's Dictionary gets it wrong. So uh, in fairness to us, but, but the Webster's Dictionary says that the word church, the first two words, are you ready for this? A building, okay? A building for public and especially Christian worship. So this is a building for worship. And by the way, that is actually how we use it in our modern vernacular. Uh, We say to our friends at work or to the people we work work out with, we say, where do you go to church? Or what church do you go to? Okay, so we think of it in our modern culture as a place we go to. And obviously, we know different than that because we go to a great church like Gospel Light and Pastor Capace and Dr. Horton are regularly reminding us, no, church is a group of people. It's the people of God. And yes, it is. But over the last few months, I have taken a deeper dive into this word historically. And my goodness, I want to share it with you today. So I'm going to tell you what this word means in the Greek, and then we can just go home. Okay? Should take about five seconds. What do you think? Um, you all know me better than that. Okay? But, but let's take a look at this word, ekklesia. All right, let's take a look at it up on the screen. Uh, this is a political assembly 
which sought to move forward the agenda of their king and empire. Now, the fascinating thing about this word is that it was not a religious word. It was not a religious word. So at the end of class today, when I pass out the test and it says, is this a religious word? You're going to put no. This is not a religious word. This was a very common word during this time period. And this is actually a Greek word. Okay, so Greek, Greek empire, Greek language. Okay, and then the Greeks uh, passed down all of their stuff to the Romans and the Romans spoke Greek, and they were Hellenized, all this fancy stuff. Basically, they used Greek language, Greek gods, Greek culture, all that good stuff. So the Romans are now speaking what? They're speaking Greek. And this is a very common word in the Greek language, ekklesia. This is a political assembly which sought to move forward the agenda of their king and empire. And the fascinating thing about this idea is that if there was two or three people who were Roman citizens and they were gathered in the name of the empire, they could actually carry forward a decree from the king and they could make a decision right there where they were. They didn't have to go to the town hall. They didn't have to uh, go into town. As long as two or three were gathered together in the name of the emperor, what they said would be done. What they unlocked would be unlocked. What they locked would be locked. Okay, and most of your minds are going straight to Jesus on this. So the first time that this word ecclesia is used in this book right here is by Jesus himself. And when we go to this place in the book of Matthew, we find that Jesus takes his followers, his 12 disciples, and he takes them to this place called Caesarea Philippi. Now, I'm about to enter about a five-minute part of the sermon where it's like college class geek mode. So I need you guys to track with me right now, and then we'll get to the sermon. But you've got to stay with me. This is really important. Okay, Jesus takes the 12 disciples. When you hear the word 12, your mind should think the 12 tribes of Israel and what Jesus is doing in choosing 12 is he's starting a new, a new thing, a new kingdom. Okay? He's bringing the kingdom of heaven down to earth, and he's choosing 12. Okay, are you with me? Okay? Jesus takes his 12, and he takes them to Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea Philippi is a Greek name, but the Hebrew name is Bashan. It's the region of Bashan, and the mountain is Mount Hermon. Okay, so when you all get your tests at the end of class today, where is the mountain where Jesus first uses the word ecclesia? Mount, Mount Hermon. Now, now that I've said that to you, you're going to see it all throughout the Hebrew Bible, all throughout the Psalms. We have Bashan, 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 Mount Hermon, Mount Hermon. This is Caesarea Philippi. So in the New Testament or in the Greek language, we have Caesarea Philippi. In the Hebrew Bible, we have the region of Bashan and we have Mount Hermon. All right, how many of y'all want to see a picture of Mount Hermon? All right, let's see Preacher and Carol Ann. Oh, there's me and Christy. Let's go to Preacher and Carol Ann. Stay on this picture here. Um, now, they have heavy rain gear. Uh, Carol Ann, tell us something about the rain while we were there. It was, it, was, it was insane. It was intense for four straight days. It just rained and rained and rained. They actually took us to a shoe store to buy boots and stuff because we were not really prepared for it. 
It rained the whole time. And uh, the mountain behind Preacher's Head is Mount Hermon. This is the region of Bashan. And I want you to notice carefully the dark spot in the mountain. Now, this is so fascinating, okay? The dark spot in the mountain is this ginormous cliff within a mountain. And you walk and you look way down. And pagan tradition said that this was the gate of Sheol in the, New Test- in, the, in the Old Testament. The Hebrew word is Sheol. In the New Testament, we have Hades. This was the underworld. This is the place where souls would go when they died. And the, the, not, not to go too far into this conversation, but the, the apostles spoke into this. Uh, in both Jude and Second Peter, this was the place of the underworld where the God of the dead, whose name was in Hebrew, it's Baal. Uh, you might say, as you read it in English, Baal. Uh, Baal was actually the prince of the underworld, and it was thought that he had the key which kept everybody in the underworld. Okay, are, are you with me? So we have Baal, which later goes down and we call it Baal-zebub, and that's a whole other thing. But yes, this is Satan, uh, the Satan, the devil in the New Testament, Old Testament. We have Baal. Baal is the dude who has the keys to the grave, and when people go into the grave, they can't come back out because he has the keys. And Jesus takes his disciples right here to this spot. And he says to them, on this rock, I'm going to build my ecclesia. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Michael Heiser says, Jesus goes to ground zero in biblical demonic geography to announce that Bashan will be defeated. It is the gates of hell that are under assault and they will not hold up against the church. Hell has no claim on those who align themselves with Jesus. He will reverse the curse of death and his own will rise on account of him. And the church says, amen. Amen. Now, there's a whole nother sermon right after this one about the mountain of transfiguration, which is at the same place, but we won't go there today. When we grasp the meaning of the word ecclesia and we see how Jesus repurposed it, We begin to read the Bible in a new way because we see kingdom theology all throughout the New Testament. Instead of just reading a story of something that happened way back then or won't happen until way, way into the future, we understand that we are being invited into this story right here and now and that we get to participate in it. Listen, if you and me have come to King Jesus by faith, he has given you new life. The grave no longer owns you. Baal can no longer keep you in the grave. You can say, just as the psalmist said, he will not leave me in Sheol, but he will raise me on the last day. You have the promise of our king that
that you will rise from the grave someday and you will live with him forever. This is the promise of the church. And here's the thing, gospel light. When you and me start to see that we are the ecclesia, we are the group of people that gather together to push forward the agenda of our king, we begin to see that we are being called to participate in it right here and now. Yes, it is true that we long and wait for the day when our king returns. That is true. And yes, it is true that in the past, long ago, God saved us through his son on the cross. So we have this past and we have this future hope. But right here today, you in the gifts that God has given you by his spirit can participate in the kingdom of God right here and now. Wow. Boy, this changes the way that we read the Bible and it changes the way that we read Acts because Acts is no longer this old book about something that happened long ago, but it's something that you and me are being invited into right now. Now, when you open up the book of Acts, you get the launch of Jesus' ecclesia. It's the launch of it. And what's really interesting, now that I've told you this, I want you to go read the book of Acts, and I promise you, you'll never read it the same. Um, The book of Acts actually starts off by Jesus teaching his disciples about the kingdom of God. And then the book of Acts ends with Paul, the very last pages of Acts, it ends with Paul teaching the church about the kingdom of God. The whole book of Acts is about the kingdom of God, the ecclesia, the group of people that God is empowering by his spirit to carry forward his kingdom. So it's the launch of the kingdom. And where, where, we're, where we are beginning this morning is in chapter 4. And Pastor Capese preached from the very end of chapter 4 last week. But at the beginning of chapter 4, we have two of Jesus' disciples that have been dragged into the courtroom by the religious leaders of that day because they had healed a man and they were teaching the resurrection of the dead. And what happened when these religious leaders pulled these two men into the courtroom? They said to them, who gave you the power and authority to do this? Who told you you could do this? It wasn't us. We're the religious leaders. Who gave you this authority? And Peter and John look at them and said, oh, we did it in the name of Jesus. And then the religious leaders said, well, you can't do that. We're the leaders and we're telling you you can't do that. And they said, well... Are we going to listen to you or are we going to listen to God? Who who should we listen to? These religious leaders are so ticked off. They're so angry and furious that they, they know they can't do anything to them. But they kick them out and they say, they threaten them and they say, don't do that again. And so now we have Peter and John coming back to the ecclesia, back to the assembly. And this is where we're going to pick up in the story. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. The very first thing that they did when they returned from the courtroom is they gathered in prayer. And this is what they prayed. Sovereign Lord, They said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth 
of your servant, our father David. And now they're going to quote from Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one or Messiah. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the, holy, through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that anything, any, any of their possessions was their own. But they shared everything they had with great power. The apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy person among them. I want to share with you what happens when God's spirit is poured out upon his ecclesia. That's the conversation this morning. Number one, Jesus' ecclesia recognized that Jesus was now king. This was not a kingdom that they were waiting for. This is a kingdom that had already come. What happened in Psalm 2 was the psalmist is looking ahead to the day when the Messiah comes and asks God, he says, ask me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. And they're recognizing that this has happened. The Messiah has come and he has been given the entire world, the nations, as his inheritance. But what do the disciples think is now going to happen? Jesus has died, he's been buried, he's risen from the grave, and now Jesus is right there at the start of Acts, he's with his ecclesia. And what do they think is going to happen? Well, look at verse 6 of the book of Acts. Then they gathered around Jesus and asked him, here we go. All right, Jesus, uh, are you ready? Go. Let's, we're, you're going to build your kingdom, right? You're gonna, first of all, we've got to kick King Herod out. He's a no-go. He's not, it's not supposed to be the king anyway. He's not from the line of David. You are. You're the rightful king. So are you going to establish your, your, your kingdom, Israel? Oh, and then after Jesus becomes king of Israel, what's the next on the agenda? Well, Jesus is going to rid Israel from their enemies, which was the Roman Empire. So the disciples are ready. They said, let's go. This is it. Jesus is going to be king, and, he, and we're going to be with him, and, he, and we're going to rule the world. And Jesus says to them, uh, no, it's not for you to know the time that God is going to do this. But God promised you the Holy Spirit, and he's going to come upon you with power, and you're going to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Here's, here's a key for us to unlock the New Testament. Are you all ready? 
Dial in with this idea with me. The Jews expected the Messiah to come at the end of the age. They never expected that he would come in the middle of history. All of Jesus' followers, while Jesus was here on earth, they believed he was the Messiah. And they believed that the Messiah was going to save them from the Romans. They did not think the Messiah was going to die. Because if the king died, he couldn't lead them out of slavery to Rome. They believed he was the Messiah, but they didn't believe he was going to die. And time and time again, Jesus keeps telling them, I'm going to die. And Peter gets in front of him and says, no, you're not. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. They believed Jesus was the Messiah. They just didn't believe that he was going to die. Then he died, and they were expecting him to set up heaven right here and now. And Jesus says, no, not now. What's going on is that they're recognizing he's the Messiah, but he's not the Messiah they thought he was. And he's not doing things the way they thought he would. They were looking for the Messiah to come at the end of the age, but what the Messiah actually did is he grabbed the end of the age and he dragged it to the present. So that what would be true then is true now. So the kingdom that was going to come then is here now. So that the eternal life that they would receive then is here now. Are you seeing what's going on? These mortal bodies that we have that are decaying and dying are going to die and go into the grave. But what is being offered to you, me and, to you and me now is resurrection in our spirits so that the Holy Spirit comes into our dead spirits and awakens them and gives us life here and now. That's right. Are you listening to me? The eternal life that God has for you can be taken now so that everything in this world that is perishing and dragging you down can be ridden of and so that you can experience the life that God wants to give you now. Nothing can keep you from that. The victory has been won and you can experience it. You don't have to continue down the dark road that you're on. This is the promise. This is the reality. Now that the Messiah had come, now that he had defeated death, now that he had the key to death in Hades, now that he sent his spirit to awaken our dead spirits, we can experience the born again new life here and now. And how do we experience new life here and now? Well, it might surprise you but it happens when you close your eyes. Number two, the prayers of Jesus' ecclesia enacted the king's decree along with his provision and protection. I think for most of my life, prayer has been a habit that I know I'm supposed to do But God's going to do what God's going to do, so it doesn't really matter if I pray.
But if you read the book of Acts, on the first page of the book of Acts, it says that they were continually gathering together for prayer. It doesn't seem to me like they thought prayer was just a spiritual discipline to please or appease the gods. They seem to think that there was something about prayer in which you were entering another dimension to actually speak to the king, which you are a citizen of. And what's so interesting about this is we have the king who is offering provision and protection to those within his kingdom, and your hand might be slipping up right now, and you might be saying, but Scott, all of these guys died. Like they were murdered. Some of them like turned upside down on crosses. Um, it doesn't seem like the king protected them. Well, let me remind you, when your king has the key to the grave, what is death? I think there's people in this room. And if you were to look at your life, it's looked a lot more like hell than it has heaven. And you might be prone to ask the question, where was King Jesus when my husband took his life and when my second husband died? And when my parents walked out on me, when my child died, where's King Jesus? Guys, don't be fooled. Our king has the key. What is death? And I don't want to make it sound like God just flippantly lets us die. God weeps with you when you weep. And God cares so much about your pain that he was willing to leave heaven to come and do something about it. The kind of king that we have is not the kind of king that sits on the throne and demands favors. He's the kind of king that gets off of the throne to come down and serve the citizens. And so you and me just so happen to be living at a period of time where we're living in the age of sin and death. And it stinks and it's terrible and it's painful and it's awful. But our king has the key. Don't ever forget it. And that king invites you and me into his courtroom, into the throne room. And he lets us participate. So much of prayer is aligning my will with the Father's will. But also... God, the sovereign of the universe, is a flexible God who's willing to change his mind. He's willing to bless you if you'll come and receive the promise. 
How many of you understand there's promises all over this room that have not been obtained because we didn't go into the throne room? Prayer is an invitation into the throne room in which through it we can obtain the promises of God. Catch this. And if you don't hear anything I say in this sermon, I want you to hear this. You guys remember the psalm that the guys in Acts are quoting? Psalm 2. God gives his son what? The nations. Does he just give it to them or, or is there a stipulation? Ask of me and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance. Even the son of God had to ask. If you and I realize that there are things that the Father is wanting to give you, but you just have to ask, maybe this is going to change the way we look at prayer. So often we look at prayer as this like mystical habit. But what if there was two or three of you that were experiencing some difficulty at your workplace? Or someone within your family, there was some friction and some confrontation. And two of you or three of you are going to gather together in his name. And you're going to claim the promise so that we, what he has already decreed is put into place. I think, I, think this, I think this might change the way that we pray. And by the way, you want to know the best part about this? You don't have to go to the temple. You can just literally put your arm around a coworker and say, Hey, how was your brother's surgery? Can I pray with you right now? Like you can take the decree from the king and you can bring it anywhere into the kingdom and what he said from the throne room applies throughout the kingdom. This is prayer. Number three, the king sent the Holy Spirit to empower his ecclesia. Do I have anybody in the room who has purchased a new car in the last year? Anybody? A new car, brand new. Anybody? One? Anybody else? Two? Okay. How about the last two years? Anybody? Last two years? I know, okay, I know we've got COVID, so that kind of throws a wrench into this question because cars are so expensive. Uh, me and Christy are, uh, uh, about two years ago, I think, two and a half years ago, um, we were going to upgrade our vehicle. And um, we, my dad always taught me, I don't know if you all had a dad like I did, but you, you're never allowed to buy a new vehicle. And, you know, it's the, the moment it drives off the lot, boom, it loses value. And my dad, I mean, he gave me this speech like 700 times. So I just always assumed that I would never buy a new vehicle. And Christy and I wanted to upgrade our vehicle. Our van was eight years old, and it was needing some work. And so we said, let's, let's upgrade. So we started looking at two-year-old vehicles, and good grief in the morning, they were literally almost as expensive as the new ones. And all of these rebates are being thrown out by the government. And we're like, we could literally spend like $2,000 more and get a brand new vehicle with no miles. So we pull off the lot 
hands on the wheel of a brand new Honda Odyssey. Now, I know a Honda Odyssey is not like a sweet car. I mean, I'm, I'm a dad of four, okay? So it, it, it's not like I was, you know, picking up chicks on my way home. Um, but there is something extremely special about driving off the lot with a new vehicle. The feel, the smell, you're freaked out as you're pulling out that you don't bump into anything. And it's like the van that we had before, I was like running into things on purpose. <laughs> and, and now I'm driving this vehicle, and of course Christy already makes fun of me for driving too slow, and now she's like calling me and saying, Scott, come on, we gotta get home, and I'm driving so slow. What good would a brand new vehicle be without fuel? Um, how long would it take if you didn't have fuel for that new vehicle to wear off? The splendor of it. In fact, I would imagine if gas was scarce and you couldn't get it, I would imagine the new vehicle would actually be worse than if you hadn't got it. Because you have this beautiful thing that you can't use. I think that the ecclesia of Jesus is like a new vehicle that's sitting in a lot and not being driven. Without the Holy Spirit. And I feel like for so much of my life, I've just not wanted to do what I was supposed to do. And I'm looking for the feeling. Like, I just don't, I don't want to do this. I don't feel like it. And I'm convinced that when the Holy Spirit is poured out on a group of people... There's nothing that belongs to us that's ours. We have enormous courage and boldness. We're willing to do things that are just crazy and just people are going to be looking at us and saying, what is going on? And God wants to pour his spirit out on his ecclesia. But he won't do it if we don't ask him to. But if we'll ask, you'll have the power and the fuel to do what he's calling you to do. And this leads me to my, my next point. When the people of God recognize the mission of God, Brought about by salvation, by the salvation of God, and they're filled with the Spirit of God. There is never a lack for ambition or boldness. Jesus' ecclesia acted with boldness, carrying out the, king, the, the king's agenda. Now, I want to talk about this idea of courage and boldness for a second, because... I think if you were to look around our country today, you would see a lot of courage and boldness, uh, especially on social media. And I'm joking, but I'm serious. 
Um, how many of you understand it's pretty easy to be courageous on social media when the people that you're being courageous to have never seen you? Um, fortunately for me, and those of you that know me well will probably get a bigger laugh out of this than those of you that don't know me, but fortunately for me, my boss and my mentor is really good at social media, and which means he doesn't do it at all, um, and a lot of times I'll text Pastor Capaci and I'll say, hey, I'm thinking about posting this on Facebook, and the fact that I'm texting him should already tell you that I know I probably shouldn't be posting it on Facebook. <laughs> And uh, he'll just send me, like, one word back, abort. Um, <laughs> Scott, please. Um, I'm already dealing with enough problems. We don't need our missions pastor stirring the pot. And so I'll put my, t- my tail between my legs, and I won't post it. And then about a day later, and I don't always tell you this, I'm like, thank God. Yeah, that, was, that, was, that was wise. Um, it can, be, it can be easy to be courageous in this world that we live in. I'm just going to say what I need to say. I'm just going to tell them what I think. Um, but when I go to the book of Acts and I, look, I, and I look at what their boldness and courage looked like, um, I think we get a little different flavor. What would, the, what would courage look like in the ecclesia? When you're not happy with the decision that the elders are making. And instead of going to the person next to you and dragging the elders through the mud. You went to the elders and you said, could I talk to you about this? Now, (laughs) I didn't mean to step on a toe there. That's tough. What would it look like when there's someone in your small group who has offended you? And instead of being cold to them and ignoring them. You go to them and you say. Can we talk about something? Because right after we read about this courage and boldness. Luke tells us that they were all of one mind. And they were of one heart. I promise you, gospel light, the Holy Spirit is a million miles away from a tongue that's on fire that drags other people down. And I don't know about you, but I get the sense that there's some revival coming to Hot Springs. And I think we're already starting to see little pieces being put in place for an enormous moving of the Spirit right here among us. And the goal of the enemy is to get you and me not to boldly turn our backs on the left liberal on Facebook and tell them what we we believe, but to turn our backs on one another With the spirit of criticism and slander. To be bold and courageous. Means that we look people in the eyes. And we tell them the truth. In love. 
And boy, do we all need work on that. It's amazing how much courage I have on social media. And when I go home to my own wife, it jumps right out the door. It's amazing how kind and loving I am on social media. And when I walk home and enter the door of my house, it seems to be missing. When the Spirit of God is poured out on a group of people, there is incredible courage and boldness to carry forward the agenda of the King throughout an entire community of people. This leads me to my last point. Jesus' ecclesia realized their participation in the kingdom through overwhelming generosity and service. Have you all ever heard someone say, God doesn't need your money? Have you ever heard someone say that before? God doesn't need your money? Okay. Um, News flash to all of us. God doesn't need anything. Um, God is the I am. He's the first and the last. He's the one who was, who is, and who is coming, and who will be. They're like, Scott, could you explain that to me? No. God is not within our space and time. He's outside of it, and he just is. And from him flows all things. Everything that is, is coming from the creator who is and who sustains all things and nothing sustains him. God does not need anything. But I'm going to give a little pushback on this one. God doesn't need our money. God has chosen to work in and through human beings to accomplish his will in the world. Look at this quote on the screen. God does not bypass human beings to accomplish his will in the world, but he does it in and through them. This means that just like there are promises which you and I could claim if we went and asked for them, there is also things which God would do in the world which he won't do in the world if people within his kingdom don't participate. God has chosen to work in and through you and me and in and through our money. And if you don't believe me, just look at church history over the last 2,000 years. Where there have been entire nations and millions of people who have lived in darkness... Because no one in that kingdom chose to participate in God's rescue mission for the world. God is the one by his spirit who brings revival through a nation. But he, did, he does so through willing participants. That means if God is going to bring revival to the city of Hot Springs, it's going to be because there's a group of his people that are part of his kingdom who are begging for it. I am convinced that revival does not happen because there's no willing participants. It's as if Jesus walks into a city and he wants to heal someone, 
but he can't or he doesn't because of their faith. It's not that Jesus is unable to heal because he has all power. It's that he has chosen to not participate when he doesn't have willing participants. Now, this thought is so incredible. And I think if we'll grab it, it'll change the way we look at at our money. In verse 33, Luke says that God's great blessing was upon them all. Now, Pastor Capace used the English Standard Version last week, and it said God's grace was upon them all. Which one is right? Yes, they're both right. Uh, Great translations. Um, God's grace is poured out on them. His blessing was upon them all. And I read through this passage in four different translations as I was preparing for this, just to look at different uh, ways that our our translators today have put it. This one captivated me. God's blessing was upon them all. That word blessing is a very common theme that flows all the way through the Bible. And it's first found on the first page of the Bible where God blessed his image bearers, his his creatures that he created in his likeness. And he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God blessed Adam and Eve so that they could be a blessing to the world. God blessed Abraham and Sarah so that they would be a blessing to the world. God blessed the nation of Israel so that they would be a blessing to the world. And Jesus Christ took the curse that you and I brought into the world by our sin so that we could receive the blessing of God. It was through the cross that you and I are made rich. Though we were in poverty, we are made rich because it was he who was rich who became poor. The kingdom of God looks like caring for people in need. And when I care for you, When you're in need, it means that I give of my excess and it it, it means that I give of my necessity. Jesus gave up what he had so that we could get. Now, let's think about this for a second and let's go all the way back to the garden and let's look at how God blessed Adam and Eve. In order for the whole thing to work. The ones God is blessing has to trust him that he's not going to let them starve. There has to be trust in order for there to be generosity. Okay, this is going to be on the quiz at the end of the class. In order for there to be generosity, there has to be trust because you have to trust that when you give, you'll get more. And what happens when I don't trust? I'm not generous. In fact, the opposite of generosity is greed. And greed is nothing more than me making sure I have enough because I don't trust that I'm going to have enough. I think there's going to be a scarcity, so I stockpile on bottled water before Y2K. 
I think there's not going to be enough, so i got to make sure we have enough. And after I've made sure we have enough, then we can look to take care of the needs of people, which is why, Pastor Capace, a lot of us, if we're honest with each other, we get up before a missions revival and we say, you could give up a cup of coffee for Jesus. And, and I've, I've, I mean, I've said that before. One cup of Starbucks a day will, sit, will, will feed these poor people. And then I go and I just open the book of Acts and it's like, oh, they sold land and houses. Okay, let me keep reading. Scott, are you suggesting that some of us sell our houses and land for the kingdom of God? Yes. I'm not joking. I'm not suggesting you sell your house and live on the street. I'm suggesting the way that the kingdom of God works is that you and me trust the Father so much And we have a working relationship with him in which every time I give, he takes care of me. Like, I'm going to trust him even though times are tight and my battery's dead. But but I'm just going to trust. And we'll look at that. He took care of me. And this is not a prosperity gospel in which, hey, come to Jesus and all of your wildest fantasies will come true. This is a relationship with your king when you realize that he has everything and that he will provide and protect you if you're part of his kingdom. So that nothing that you have belongs to yourself. That Second car in the driveway that's really nice to have that you're not using. What if you gave it to one of our men over here in Gethsemane who are in need of a car? Oh man, that's radical. Like, I think think I'd rather sell the car, take the $7,000 and give a Starbucks a week to the church. If you all think that I'm attempting to finagle money out of you, I can assure you that I'm not. In four hours, I hop on a plane and I fly to the Dominican Republic. And for three days, I'm going to go around to five church plants and look at people who when I say they're poor, it doesn't really compute with us because we don't have that kind of poverty in America. And I cannot go on my own dime. I, I can't. And they have a school that they're building and they're desperate for money. And Pastor Capace has asked me to go over and check things out to see if this would be a good investment for Gospel Light because we want to be good stewards of God's money and we don't just want to throw money at something before we check it, before we look into it. But there's a good chance I'm going to come back from this trip and I'm going to go to the elders and I'm going to say, 
they need $20,000. And the truth is, there are people in this church who could give that and you would keep living just like you're living and nothing would change. But that's not who I'm talking to this morning. I'm talking to the people in the room that are thinking about those people and thinking they'll take care of it. Oh, thank God uh, we've got these wealthy people going to our church because like, they can take care of the mission stuff. And the whole time, the king of our kingdom is offering you a spot of participation if you'll just say yes. And it doesn't look like you giving a million dollars. It looks like you giving the hundred dollars that you need for a battery. You might be in this room and you're looking at me and you're saying, Scott, I have five dollars in my pocket. I'm living paycheck to paycheck. Okay, would you consider that the way that you're living right now is not the way that King Jesus wants you to live? He wants to pour abundance on you so that through you, you can be a blessing to those in need. This is, this is how the kingdom of God works. God finds a people group so in tune with King Jesus and empowered by his spirit that he's willing to change the world around them in and through them. So if you think the kingdom of God is something that's coming way in the distant future, think again. It's here, it's now. What, I, what I'd like to call our church to do this morning is I'd like for us in a moment to stand and I want us to sing this song and I want us like we've never before to actually think about what we're singing. And I want us all collectively as an ecclesia, as the ecclesia of Jesus, I want us to hail King Jesus. Would you all stand and hail Jesus with me this morning?